This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are seeking to do good better. We'd love to do that with you as you're listening, and we love that today we're with a very special guest. So today we get to talk with Margaret Didums. Dr. Margaret Didums is principal consultant at the Didums Group. She is former provost at Wheaton College, where we are. We know and love her, and she's been instrumental in helping to launch the Masters in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program that we're part of here. So Margaret, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Hi, guys. We're going to have a great conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. And our topic today, we're going to do a series of podcasts on innovation and so appreciate your organizational leadership. And I know that's part of your academic training as well. To get started, would you mind defining innovation for us? When you hear that word, what comes to your mind? Well, actually, when I hear that word often, I just kind of cringe because it's Mm -hmm. a cringeworthy word. Mm -hmm. But Because I like to think of innovation as good transformational leadership. It's getting from one place to another in a way that helps everyone, people and organizations to flourish. I think too often people tend to think in terms of innovation as some kind of self-identity. I'm an innovator or I'm a disruptor. Mm -hmm. I don't find that very helpful. Mm -hmm. You lead innovation, you lead change because you have a holy discontent. There's something going on that you want to see change. And that's what's really important to me about innovation is it's not where you want to go. It's recognizing where you are. And so when I say that, just to jump right in, Mm -hmm. when you see something, again, that kind of holy discontent that the Holy Spirit is nudging you that, you know, things are maybe good, but could be better. Things are not where you want them to be. There is that in your soul I want to see something change. And so when you have that, that's the point of at which you can start with innovation is that you need to work with people so that they have the same vision you have in the here and now. We often talk about vision casting as what something needs to be in the future. For innovation to be important and to work, you've got a vision cast for where you are now. And you have to have others develop that sense of holy discontent. So that's where people usually get innovation wrong. They're thinking innovation for the future. You have to start with where you are here and now and make sure that other people see it. So that's the first thing I want to say about innovation. I'm going to stop talking for a second and let you guys do it. No, it's great. <laughs> but say a little bit more. So how do we do that? Right. So the holy, when you say the here and now, that's really helpful. So it's identifying understanding kind of what the current reality is and then what makes us discontent and getting agreement there. Is that right? Or what else would you add to that? Right. So what often happens when you want to lead change is that most of the people that you're working with are happy with how things are because it works for them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can think of that in terms of complacency. That might be too negative a word, but the idea is that when people are complacent, they don't see that there could be something different around them. So you want to start with that idea of honoring that people see that something is working for them. 
And so the point with innovation is you always want to get with the yes and. You want to respect and honor the work that has happened in the past, but you want to say we can do better. So what often happens when people are leading innovation and that when innovation doesn't work, there's a, a kind of kneecapping, as it were. Uh, we can't do it like this anymore and a dishonoring. And what happens is if you're going to engage it with in the terms of dishonoring, you're not going to have the people you want to come along with with mm-hmm. you. There's often this idea of leading from the front and everyone's, you know, I lead from the front. I lead with vision. Well, if you're not turning around and seeing people right behind you, you're not leading. You might be alone. You might be alone. (laughs) (laughs) All you're doing is yada, yada, yada. And then you're wondering why something fails in 18 Mm -hmm. months to three years, right? Mm -hmm. So that idea is to spend the time up front and make sure that you can understand why something needs to be different and really paint a narrative around that. So just to say at Wheaton College, when I came, when you all were there, is there weren't a lot of programs online and the graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so what was happening is that families were, if they want to go to a Wheaton graduate school, they had to uproot their families and they had to come move to very expensive to Page County for two or three years. And so when we think about that from a mission point of view, if at Wheaton College, we want to bring the gospel to the world, then we have to think about how we're going to bring education to the world. So to get that kind of holy discontent of, you know, we could do this differently and to really paint a picture of why it's not working now. And you can show graphs, you can show all the graphs and numbers you want, but it's really creating a story so that other people have that holy discontent about where things are now and get to buy it. And it's not smacking around, again, not smacking around the good work that's been doing, but saying, hey, let's really put this forward. Well, Margaret, I really like that idea of holy discontent. So as a person who I think I may wrestle with that at times, how do I know if that's actually a holy discontent or maybe it's I just have authority issues or I like poking at things or maybe it's just heartburn or I haven't had enough coffee today. How do I discern or how do we discern if it's actually holy discontent versus maybe something totally different and maybe something that's not even a healthy motivating factor? Yeah. I love the idea to make it not be about me and whatever issues I have with someone else wanting to prove my mettle, because that's what happens a lot in these kind of things, is it's, it's taking the time to have informal conversations. Hey, what do you all think? What do you think about this? And give people the space to say, yeah, I can see that. So it's a lot of informal conversations. I worked for Microsoft in the 1990s. So talk about innovation or maybe lack thereof. I had a a wonderful director who would have maybe 20, 30 conversations with people before he launched anything because he wanted to make sure that he wasn't making stuff up, that what he was Mm -hmm. seeing other people could see also. And he was great at driving change. So that's what I learned from him is have those conversations up front and early on so that you're not making it up in your head. I love to use the phrase, we see what we seek. So people tend to see what they expect. And so if they're happy with how things are going, then they tend to see what is right in front of them instead of, hmm, could that be different? So part of those conversations that you have with people is getting them to go, hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And if you get enough of that, then you can say, yeah, I, I think we're here somewhere. The personality issues where we've all worked with people who, because they see themselves as innovators, they think they're going to drive it and they're going to be the, you know, we, we praise vision casters. I really think it's important to develop the vision of where we need to go in collaboration. It just, mm-hmm. the, the gears don't work well together if you're not doing that pre-work. Mm. A couple of things strike me. One is we talk a lot about it in the program, and I think a characteristic of what you talked about in both these things so far is humility, like, you know, which means yeah. you, you're willing to listen. It means we don't just kind of pretend everything before us was past was bad, and then we're going to be perfect, you know, that there's humility that's running through what you're saying. I love that idea of the conversations, just pausing there, thinking about someone who's listening, who's leading an organization or a missions committee or a program for an NGO. Do you have advice for how to have those conversations so they're fruitful? You kind of hinted at it, but you know, how yeah. do we have those conversations where we don't hear what we're seeking, or especially right. if we're in authority, we don't get right. a feedback loop that's not helpful, but right. how do we have those conversations in a way that's helpful? Right. So one of the things you want to do is you don't want to start kind of at 30,000 feet, like the house is going for you. What you really want when you're looking at innovation is a triggering situation, kind of the technical term. Something that kind of worked well, didn't work well, isn't what is going on. And the thing about innovation is it's not always change from something from negative to good. It can be good to something better. So to think about your program there in humanitarian disaster leadership, the triggering story for me that I shopped, Jamie, was when you had the international biannual conference. And it was the last day back in 2016, and you had a final Q&A, and there were people from all over the world, and the most common question was, we need more training, we need more training, we need more training. So I shopped that with people. I said, hey, we are hearing from leaders all over the world telling us they need more training, and they cannot move to DuPage County in Illinois for training. Can we do something else? What do you think we can do? But I started with that triggering story to get people to think in terms of how might we serve those needs. And that's what I mean about holy discontent was there was clearly a need coming out of that conference. And what could we do to address it in a way that someone in Africa could earn graduate credit to go more deep in your area? And so that's what I was looking for is telling that story and then saying, hey, what can we do? Mm -hmm. That's great hearing that uh, reflection. And one of the things, Margaret, at the time, I don't think I realized it, but now looking back with you sharing that can see that you were also practicing the, the yes and approach that, you know, as we were working on trying to get the program launched and you were such a huge advocate. And just by the way, to everybody listening, this program would not exist if it wasn't for Dr. Didums. So she was an incredible advocate of helping the program come into existence. But I remember as we were talking about online learning, how that was very different at the time for Wheaton, you know, we'd never done that here. And one of those things that yes, and was that, oh, we're also going to have a residential one year for those that still want it. But then we'll also have this additional online and two weeks in person that was that yes and approach of it. I didn't even realize that's what you were doing, but found that to be incredibly helpful. 
Yes, we get to we get to learn the secrets here, like Margaret's yes. secrets that we learned while she was leading. <laughs> well, Jimmy and I are both psychologists, and so it was really important to me that we had the programs launch with that face to face, so that people could mm-hmm. start developing those relationships. And so when they did their ten days or two weeks here on on the campus at Wheaton, and then. They had already had those conversations. They had already had that, I know who you are. They had developed those I-thou relationships so that when it got to the point where they were doing school online, it wasn't Mm two-dimensional, right? So it was the best of, it was the yes and, and yet the ability to have teachers and students around the world. So then if we think about this kind of holy discontent and defining where things are now as part of it, not rejecting the past, but building on it, having a triggering event helps with communication. What happens next in healthy innovation as we move forward? Well, I want to jump back Mm -hmm. just a little bit before you have that kind of triggering event. And that's the importance of having a culture that is not risk averse. Mm -hmm. And I do want to say that during covid for example, I used a phrase a lot that I now keep using is, you know what, folks, we just don't have enough information to talk about right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And what we need to talk about is making good decisions. And when we get more information, we'll make another good decision and we'll make another good decision. But that doesn't mean that our initial decisions wrong. We're just making good decisions, good decisions, good decisions. Because if we have to shift, we have to shift. And that's a really another important point in innovation is agility around that. So we can see leaders often become very convicted about change. But again, as you get more information, as you're going through the change process, you have to be absolutely agile. So that means you have to be in a culture that is willing to change and it's not risk averse and is not seeing things in terms of right and wrong, but how do we move things forward? People often think about innovation as that disruption. You know, you don't have these strong points of disruption, even when you you think about your iPhone and Federal Express and Walmart. These things take time before they disrupt. Mm -hmm. So you've always got a runway where you're working on the kinds of decisions and agility that then gets to that tipping point of change. And so it is, again, really important before you think about going through changes, what kind of culture am I working with? Is this a risk-averse culture? You know, we talk about conservatism and I'm good as conserving. And we want to conserve what is good, but we want to make sure we're not in a culture where conserving is about not facing forward and wondering if I've done a good, you know, if it's right or wrong. At When I was at Microsoft, we are always doing what we call postmortems. It didn't matter what. It didn't matter if it went extremely well. There was always a reflective mode of what did we do? What could we have done better? What was the points of good? What was the points that maybe we should have pulled back? How were we agile? Blah, 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 blah. I think we need to do postmortems all the time mm-hmm. so that when we do fail big, we already have the mechanisms in place to evaluate, right? If you're failing big, and you don't have the mechanisms in place to evaluate it, how are you going to learn from that? And you're going to go risk averse more. Mm-hmm. So even before you think about being innovative, you got to make sure that you're in a culture that's ready to fail and mm-hmm. thinks in terms of always moving the ball forward. What other, if someone's listening, think, oh, they want to go in that direction. So postmortems are a great idea to 
and like the not right or wrong. So there's an element of grace of doing our best. Any other kind of tips or ideas that are key for having this culture that can be not risk averse, you know, and that can innovate? Yeah. What else is key to having the right yeah. culture for I mean, a leader I, to? And here's the, the paradox is we think of great innovators out there and we think there's a pretty big power differential, right, between them and the rest of their organization. It's kind of that charismatic leader out in, in like the front. Steve Jobs and then yeah, everyone else. Right. Kind of, yeah. right, right. But the point being, and there are folks out there, right? Mm-hmm. Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. But they're, <laughs> they're the outliers that we all want to point to. Good leaders who are really intentional about change, it's not about them at all. You know, if you're a good leader, you know this, you get a hit rate. You don't have to worry about your own legacy. You know you're going to get enough praise. So put it to the side. You got to make sure that people are honest to your face because if they're not willing to tell you the truth and tell you what they want to tell you, you're going to get smacked. So you have to be sure that people tell you what you don't want to hear. That's super helpful. I love the phrase that I hear from other Christian leaders is, you know, what is it like to sit across the table from me? Mm-hmm. I think every leader has to ask that question of their, of their staff and be ready to hear the answer. Mm-hmm. So yes. you've got to have some kind of trusting relationship mm-hmm. before you can do this. So we talked about humility. We also have to talk about trust, that you're not right. going to take people down around a wrong road and drop them. You might take them down the wrong road, but you're going to make <laughs> you don't drop them. And what's really cool, and I really love this, is the research shows that if you want to get people to trust you, you got to trust them first. So this whole idea of Mm -hmm. leaders saying you have to earn my trust, that needs to go. Mm -hmm. So the research shows that just if you say to me, you know, Kent, if I'm your boss or Jamie, you know, says to your staff, you have to earn my trust. The message is I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. So why am I going to sit across the table from you and tell you what I really think? It just doesn't work. You have to be willing to step out and trust the people that you have around you to make change happen. Mm-hmm. So that's the humility. That's the vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That's the courage. These are the things you need inside to drive change, not a charismatic personality. Mm-hmm. That's great. So then if we have the kind of culture, and then we talked about the triggering event and sort of naming where we are now, having holy discontent, how do we move forward then in, in yeah. innovation? So now, now you are ready to talk about the future. When you get enough people saying, okay, I get it, we can do this better, then okay, so what is that going to look like? Okay, so then you start painting that other story. And this is where the vision and creativity come into play. And again, now you're coming up with another narrative of what this could look like. So in the case of your program, what if we had people studying humanitarian disaster leadership from around the world, taking classes from experts all around the world? We don't have to be situated physically here in Wheaton, Illinois, but we're going to be centered spiritually and missionally in Illinois and in Wheaton, Illinois and at Wheaton College. So you're not taking the program out of Wheaton. You're being generative and moving Wheaton out to the world. So you got to start painting that picture in terms of how is this still aligned with the mission? 
Okay. So that is not something that appears to be just broken off and fragmented. It's still aligned with the mission. It's still who Wheaton College is. It's just we're taking it in a different direction so that we can expand who gets to be part of this institution. Okay. So that's the picture that you start to paint. And a good leader, I will tell you, I heard this once from a university president, a good leader can have people parody them because there's a simple message over and over and over again. And when the students parody you, you know you've done your job because (laughs) everyone knows the message. But the thing you want to do with that is you want to make sure that you are making it so that you want to enhance the volume. So you want to make sure that everyone who's engaged with it is you're all saying the same thing to the different audiences so that it just becomes normative. So a good leader helps to shape that because a good leader can communicate well with a story that gives the vision, but then you want to make sure that as you're creating that, everyone is that you're working with is nodding their head honestly. And so y'all have different constituents. So you want to make sure that all your constituents that are going to be involved are hearing that same story. And Margaret, as you talk about kind of going through these kind of almost like different stages of what innovation looks like, how do you know then as a leader when to start making that transition, right? That Because ideally everybody you know, in the yeah. organization would be like, yes, we're all on the same page on the same day in the same location. Even right. it's amazing, but that yeah. rarely happens. So what do we do so that it doesn't start to be, you know, like when I was first learning how to drive a stick shift and I knew I needed to transition, I could hear the engine going, but I would grind the gears because I wasn't quite in the right, right spot. What all do right. we do so we don't grind our gears as leaders? Yeah. So establish it in a culture that you can do the change, establish that triggering event. So people understand that holy discontent Paint a new picture of where you can be. Now the fun happens because now it's budget, people, timelines. And this is where you have to dig down with your team and make sure that you're coming up with a reasonable project. So here's where market research helps. Here's where an idea of the scope of what you want to take on. Let me back up because you have this big picture. Okay, we can get there. Now you have to go go down deep and figure that out. And I would say also for Christian organizations, once you make that point that you decide, yeah, we're going to go here. So I shouldn't have jumped into the marketing and everything. Go away for a weekend and pray. Hmm. Have a discerning process. And I want to say a discerning process where it's prayerful, but you want to foster disagreement. I have seen too many situations where Christians get together and they think they've come up with an answer because they have the unity of the spirit. And I always hold my breath when I hear that. Again, because I'm a psychologist, I go, you all didn't disagree. You all kept your concerns inside You all didn't communicate because you had this overarching goal of unity of the spirit. I think if you go away and do a discerning weekend, you better have some disagreement Mm -hmm. and iron those out. If you go away for a whole weekend and there's no disagreement and you come back with, you know, there was pure unity of the spirit, that makes me really nervous. 
So you want to create time away where it's definitely in prayer, but that you're pushing on people. What am I not hearing? You want to foster that concern. Otherwise, it's terrible to have people say to you six, eight, ten months later, well, I thought that. I thought this wouldn't work. I thought we were being too generous in our estimations. I thought those budget estimations were a little too low. Well, why didn't we talk about that? So what again, what is it about the culture that you didn't feel that you could bring that up? So what are other just to pause on this, it's a great point and helpful for all of us. How do we foster good disagreement? How does it look healthy? So culture, obviously all the things that you talk about culture before is essentially can't, you know, do it in a weekend, but then what am I not hearing? That's a great question. What else can be like a good part of innovation, a good disagreement session? How does that work well? I actually think, I used to do this at Microsoft because it wasn't that hard, is you put someone in the role. It's mm. your job in this session to poke. Mm-hmm. We expect you to poke. And mm-hmm. that's kind of fun when you say, okay, you're going to be the poker. Mm-hmm. So I need you to be the one who listens carefully and says to us, I'm not hearing this, or I am, you know, how am I hearing this? So give someone that role, because we tend not to want to have that role. We tend not to want to be the unfriendly one. So assign it. Mm-hmm. I like that. And you change it, you change it around, everyone gets a chance to do it. But I think, especially if you build your team, after a while, when you're saying, so what am I not seeing? What am I not hearing? What am I missing? Come on, guys, help me with this. What am I missing? What am I missing? Instead of, you hear my voice, I'm saying, instead of that, so what am I missing? You hear the difference? I guess threat versus invitation. Right. (laughs) I'm serious about it. I want to know, what am I missing? Mm -hmm. And if your team knows, like, I need the friendly fire now before I go forward. So let's work this out now so that we can move forward in a way that makes sense, that we're not overestimating, underestimating, too favorable. You know, when you are coming up with a new academic program, for example, your own, is you have to think in terms of what is the sustainability, right? If your church or your organization is coming up, like, we want to take on a project, you know, that has an end date, that's fine. And so if you goof, it's okay, because you know the project's going to come to an end. But when you're starting a program that you want to have legs on it, you just got to make sure that you're designing it in in a way that is going to be agile and sustainable. (laughs) and not lock yourself in really tight from the beginning. So that's where you need your experts. You need your budget experts. You need your marketing experts. You need to get down in, this is the nitty gritty parts of it. And you're still bathed in prayer, but you also, this is where you're good stewards also. And balancing that openness to the Holy Spirit with God has given us gifts of stewardship and that we need to make sure that we're honoring what we've been given to steward. Part of that is in this phase of the nitty gritty of how do we know we'll be successful? What are the metrics for knowing that we're going to be successful so we know what we're, we're working towards? So what, what is the tell us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do we know that we're going in the direction that we want to go? So those are kind of the setup. And as part of the how do we know we've been successful is the messaging of why and why now? Why and why now? Because mm-hmm. why you speak we- a little more to that? Yeah. So why are we doing this? Whenever you are, in a sense, right, disrupting a system, you have to show that something in the future is better than it is right now. 
So why? Why do we need to do all this work and this investment? You better have a very compelling reason of why you're going to take this on, right? And why now? Instead of, is that something we want to do in the future? Well, why is it now? Again, that kind of holy discontent is I really think we need to be engaging with this now. And part of that, to jump into another direction, just let me add this. So why, why now? Is I like to think of mission as that is something that is long lasting. It's central to who we are. Missions don't need to change, but we need to be aware that we have mission here and we have what's going on in the world around us, right? And so what comes in between mission and the swirl of life, as I like to call it, is the vision. So what is the vision that links the mission to what's going on, right? So if we have a more global, multicultural world, how do I reach that with this mission? And why? So why now, right? Because the world is different and the world is networked. And because we recognize that we want to have a more global outreach. And that means going out rather than inviting everyone in, Mm -hmm. which is a model in a non-networked world. That's what you did. But now that we're in a networked world, how do we go out to the world with our mission? So that's the why and and the why now, because we want to go deep into our mission. So whenever we say purpose, why, 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 we have to go back to the mission Mm -hmm. and have to say, how are we meeting our mission? How might we do it better? That's great. And then is there another, think about these kind of four steps that you've led us through. And so let's say the plan is being enacted, it's going, it's got some of the ups and downs, some of the bumps, but it's kind of working. Like what should leader working with innovation be doing at that point? Is there celebration yeah. that should be happening? Is it, there's yeah. measurement, there's talos, right. you know, checking right. the purpose, right. but what should be happening in that kind of final stage of the particular yeah. innovation? Right. So what often happens when you get to this point where you're starting to roll out, <laughs> everyone's kind of tired. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, okay, we did it. We went through all that hard stuff. We got the buy-in. We you know, got it going, got the budget, we've launched, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's tired. This is where the leader has to be. This is where the leader steps up. And again, he's the chief storyteller. Once you launch, you're not done. You have to be telling stories, have to be telling stories. Why is this going well? Why is this going well? Why is this going well? Also, as a leader, you have to be willing to have that. So what's not going well? What do we need to change? And again, just that postmortem all the way through, what do we need to change? What worked? What didn't work? What worked? What didn't work? Continuing as you're doing something new and making sure that you're inviting as many people into that conversation, including your case students, including clients, including parishioners into that conversation around that. Then you also, as you're in this launch phase, you need to go make sure that you are in relationship with the people who were central to how things were done before, that they are coming along, that they like what you're doing. Do they have any concerns? Because for a lot of times when you're innovative, especially in a church situation, you're kind of creating mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning Mm -hmm. for people who have had the change done to something maybe that they loved and that they felt the Holy Spirit at that time was leading them. And so there really is making sure that there's not 
a break in community with those folks. You want to make sure that they feel that they're coming along and that that they're part of the new model and honoring that work that was done. I do also like to say, Kent and Jamie, if there's any way that you're going to launch something new, that you can kind of do a sandbox, that you can kind of do a soft launch, that it's clear that you're kind of in experimental mode and you're trying things out. Again, that helps with people who tend to go with the right and wrong. Like, hey, we're in sandbox mode. You know, we're this first year, we're trying this, we're going to learn from it. This is a soft launch. You know, the extent to which you can do that helps kind of with the edges and not get the criticisms that you might expect of, oh, that launch didn't go well. We're kind of in soft launch. We're learning. We're planning for the, have that clear soft launch. And then here's where we expect to really launch it. But we're in the Mm -hmm. sandbox mode. And I I really like that idea of working with that sandbox aspect. Mm -hmm. Super helpful too. And Margaret, as you think about innovation and kind of, you know, I'm kind of picturing this plane taking off here, how do we make sure that we're staying connected with our mission, but also as we're trying to adapt and be agile to things around us that we don't, you know, it makes me have kind of this mental picture of the dog from up where every time there's a noise, you know, he's always distracted and looking all over the place and chasing things all over the yard. How do we make sure that we're not just kind of running circles being overly agile. How do we get to yeah. that kind of balance? And I'm asking for a Speaking friend. Speaking for a friend, yes. <laughs> for both yeah. Jamie, I think if I'm answering this right is, is you always go back to the mission. Am I aligned with the mission? Am I doing the work of the mission? Is this tied to something else? This is a problem with the language of, that often comes with innovation and disruption is as if it's unmoored. I'm going to disrupt something. I'm going to change something totally. And yeah, it doesn't really work. There's opportunities you see out there. We don't see the failures, right? We see the successes out in the business world. You want to make sure you're tied to your mission. You don't want to be unmoored because when you're unmoored, that's when you go in the circles. But you want to be confident that what you're doing is long lasting and has legs And if it feels like it's just going in circles, then you need to take your team out and say, hey, folks, this is not working. So the thing about innovation, as she takes a pause, puts her hands over her heart, (laughs) is you got to be willing to pull the plug. Mm -hmm. And always in the back of your mind saying, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be willing to pull the plug. I've had a situation in my leadership life where in the back of my head, I'm like, this doesn't work. I got to be ready to resign. Mm. Because I believe so deeply in this, if it doesn't work, I need to take the blame for it, and I'm going to be willing to resign. Mm. And that was my Holy Spirit moment saying, yeah, I can resign if this doesn't work. So, you know, you have those dark moments where you have to say, do I believe in this so much that if I've really made a mess of this, am I willing to take ownership Mm. of this and resign? On a less dark note, you know, I talked about this phase, the leader is the key storyteller, but also the leader has to say, I own it. You know, you all are coming along with me. This is a team effort. But at the end of the day, if this goes south, it's me. Mm -hmm. And I got to be comfortable with that. I got to be comfortable with the fact that I'm taking risk. And this is that courageous kind of conviction that I believe in what I'm doing. I believe we've set this up right. I believe this isn't hubris. I believe that we are risk taking, yet we are understanding the risks 
that we're taking. But at the end of the day, if this all goes south, it's mine. It's on me. Mm. And it's not anyone else's fault because I'm the one that's driving it. One of the things I'm just thinking back to the last 40 minutes, Margaret, one of the things I love about how you've described this is there are these kind of five different stages we've talked through and there are strategies and ways to do it. But then you've talked about, like just then you didn't use the word, but I think just the integrity of a leader and then the humility of a leader all the way through. So it's not just about strategies to innovate, but it's about who we are and formation as well, which I think is really powerful. And, you know, if you're reading just in a business magazine or something, that's not what's celebrated, but there's and culture and it's about other people. There's a humility and centering others and centering mission there. So yeah, that, those two words, integrity and humility, I think sort of run through a lot of what you've been talking about. Yeah. So here's what I think is a really important point, And we could spend another hour on this is I really think leadership is an opportunity for spiritual formation. And when you are doing anything that has to do with large-scale change, you have to go deep in your own soul because you're going to have people come at you and you do not want to respond in a way that is in fear. You don't want to respond in a way that your shadow side, your dark side, your reptile brain, the fear, right? The amygdala is in overdrive. <laughs> you want to make sure that that is not what is going to drive your responses. And so when you are doing large-scale change as a Christian leader, you just have to go deep into your soul and deep into scripture, deep. You know, you could be so busy doing things for the Lord, you forget to be with the Lord. And that's so dangerous. You really have to think of it when you are a leader, how am I refreshing my soul? How am I seeing what I am doing as a way to honor the Lord? And it is not about me. And that means going deep in your own spiritual formation. So I think leadership, leadership is a crucible, but it's also a gift of spiritual formation. And especially Mm -hmm. when you're driving any kind of innovation. Mm -hmm it's always kind of like this kind of back to the future. You need to go deep into scripture. You need to go deep in prayer. You need to go deep into community. And then, like you said, I think that applies on a large scale. And then for the missionary who's having to innovate just on, you know, their own in the outpost or running a small nonprofit or a pastor, you know, solo pastor, like in all these cases, I think that spiritual formation and that sort of crucible that you talked about is that's a great way to put it, this opportunity for growing in Christ and being shaped and seeing things that aren't so good that need fixing and then seeing opportunities for transformation. I think that's a really beautiful part that God's working in innovation in us as we work for innovation. Right. right. I will say so. Back in the 90s, I was a senior manager at Microsoft. And you know this was when Microsoft's growth was just through the charts. And it was an exciting crazy place to work, but it wasn't working for me and my family anymore. And I needed to step away and I needed to, and I didn't know what the future was going to look like. And someone at that point gave me Henri Nouwen's book, Beloved. And I realized in my own soulfulness or lack thereof is that I had substituted all these accolades of you know, having a PhD, working at Microsoft, being a senior manager, that I had forgotten that I was beloved. And coming out of that time, this was 1999, I swore to myself, I would never allow any identity to upstage beloved. And I've heard other Christian leaders talk about however they manage that, but always remembering it's not about you and that if beloved is not first and foremost, you got to back off and figure out how to get back there. 
that's a beautiful place to end, but I don't want to end if anyone else has something to <laughs> to add, but you walked us through this. I love that. But anything else you would want to add, Margaret or Jamie, to think about this with this work of innovation as we seek to serve God's mission? You know, one of the things, Margaret, I just really appreciate, and I'm not surprised knowing you that, you know, throughout all this, not only thinking about how do we stay informed, you know, by the best research and science and practices, but also making sure that we're always doing this from a place of being Christ-centered and that we're listening to God and listening to others speaking into our life. So thank you for those reminders. Yeah. So guys, could have a whole semester class on, on innovation. We have just a little bit of time, but I hope that helps everyone who's going to be listening to this to have some understanding of kind of like the key stages and steps that innovation really is just being a good leader. It's just another mm-hmm. way to be a good leader to talk about wholesale change. That's great. Well, Margaret, thank you. Thank you for the way you lead in many different ways. Your leadership has made a a big difference to us and our students and to many other people around the country and around the world and here at Wheaton. So thank you for what you do. And thanks for taking this time with us. And thank you to all of you who are listening. Uh, We're grateful to be walking on this path where we keep on learning how to do good better together with you. So thank you from us at The Better Samaritan. And we'll talk with you more soon. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.